we're, we're calling this Love's Reward. Um, in reality, it's, it's, it, it's about you know, a lot of the themes that we've been covering. Um, remember in the past few weeks, and again, I'm not necessarily you know, going to assume that everybody is familiar with uh, the entire account of you know, the life of Christ, especially the cross, and, and uh, nor do I want to assume that everybody has been here along the way. But um, you know, just kind of reminding everyone that we've been talking about these beautiful concepts of love and of loyalty. And uh, specifically, we also talked about undeclared devotion. And if you recall, you know, there, the, the contrast that we talked about between the followers of Jesus, his disciples, and the other followers that were also part of his group, they're not often uh, as commonly known or referred to, but a group of women who were also very committed to Jesus. They were, um, they're often, we see pictures of them, and, and no more did their beautiful loyalty and love for Christ show up than at a moment when it seemed like everybody else had abandoned him, even his, even his men. Uh, the truth is that the devastating um, impact of what had happened to Jesus, remember we traced it when he was arrested in the garden, and then to just watch what was happening to him, in which he, he was beaten and put on trial, and then ultimately you know, sentenced to death, stripped naked, um, essentially at least close to it, whipped to the core of his bones with the Roman thrashing that he took home, his back ripped to shreds, body beaten, he was forced to carry the cross. We talked about that through the streets of Jerusalem, you know, that Via Dolorosa, that way of suffering that you can still, people still go to to, to remember something of what it might have been like and, and to watch, to have to watch Jesus going through those streets and then his body faltering, he wasn't even physically able to do it. I mean, in his humanity as a full human being that he was as well, as the son of God, he could not carry that cross. They had to call somebody out of the crowd to help him carry it. He was too weak. When he finally gets there, they nail him up. He's, he's dazed. He's, he's got a crown on him. He's bleeding all over the place. Um, they watched it all. I mean, you know what? It, it says that he's nailed up there, lifted up there. The Romans were good at what they did in a perverse way. They had, a, they had, a, they had a, a, an ability to, to really make a man suffer. And Jesus was suffering. And of course, the, the brokenness of that dream was such, had such an impact. The disciples, you know, they're like, they, in many ways, they're like you and me. In a sense, this there have been times where things have happened with people that I love and care about, and it's been so hard to, to want to go back and see it. Sometimes it's really hard just to go see them. They're waiting for us to talk to them. But we struggle sometimes. It's not really because we don't care, but it's just the whole thing is so hard for us sometimes that we're just reluctant to even show up, and yet showing up makes such a difference. I've come to learn that as the years have gone by, but the disciples didn't even show up for Jesus because they were devastated by what was happening. And the, only, the only one that even came was John. John made his way back. He's there with the women who are gathering. The core of the women who were committed to Christ, the Marys, um, Mary, the mother of Jesus, the other Marys, a few others, Mary Magdalene, they were there. They held. Their love held through the awfulness, through the violence, through everything else. But the, it, what a contrast it was to the disciples. It just couldn't even show up. Now, we know that something else happened. We talked about this, didn't we? That there was a man in the shadows, a man who, had, who was a wealthy man, and he was a man of power. And he had been following Jesus secretly, John's account tells us, for a number of, of months, maybe even a few years that this man had, was a member of the most significant governing body in Jerusalem, the Sanhedrin, that he was a man who was well-known, um, of high pedigree, 
that he had, he had access to power. Um, he had been a part of a, of a small group that um, wielded great respect in the land at the time. But this man's name, um, whom we know, decided for some reason to do for Jesus, to make his love for him known. Um, in, while Jesus was dying, he did it when, when, while Jesus was alive, he was unwilling to do it. And it's always caught people's attention to say, he, here he is. What he was unwilling to do while Jesus was alive, he steps forward out of the shadows now to do while there is nothing to gain at all. Because we know that he was afraid. The Bible says that he was afraid. What was he afraid of? He was afraid of his peers. He was afraid of losing his career. He was afraid of being ostracized in the, in the, in the realm that he was accustomed to moving with the people who were his friends, associates, colleagues. And if he connected himself to Jesus, there was a stigma connected to that, and he didn't risk it. He and another friend of his, a man by the name of Nicodemus, who's talked about in John 3. Interesting enough, there's a great exchange that occurs there in the third chapter of John. And, and we talked a little bit about that you know, last week as well. But they were followers of Jesus, but they didn't want anybody to know it. it was, they kept it totally to themselves. They opposed as subtly and as best as they could what was happening. They couldn't stop it. But now for some reason, Joseph of Arimathea while Jesus is in the process of being crucified, makes a decision to do something that is going to cost him, potentially. And he decides, and again, we don't know what, why, but his love for, the, for Jesus evidently, and the, and the guilt perhaps that he felt about him not being willing to stand up for him, caused him to make a decision that he was going to reveal the fact that he cared deeply for Jesus, and he was going to go and he was going to ask for his body because at the very least, he didn't want Jesus' body just thrown into a pit. He felt that he needed to honor him. And so he, ha he did what many would not have expected him to do because he had a lot to lose and nothing to gain. But he decided he would go to Pilate, who was the Roman governor. And then he would go to Pilate, and, be and again, he had access to power. He would go and he would ask him if it was possible to be able to have the dead body of Jesus and to be able to give him an appropriate burial. He wanted to honor him in his death. And time, we know, was of the essence because for Jewish custom, when Sabbath hits, that is nightfall on Friday, um, you couldn't do any work. So they had a very small window in which they could, after getting permission from Pilate, go get the body of Jesus. And we know that what happens is he gets permission he goes with his friend Nicodemus. They get, they get past, I'm assuming, the guards that were there through the crowd that was still lingering, watching the whole thing, the horror of it all. And he, they go, and they say, we have permission to take his body. And he was dead at this point. And, and so we talked about how they would have had to get Jesus off. Something we don't always think about. They had to get him off of the cross. It wasn't like he was tied up there. I mean, his body's hanging on nails. He's limp. He's dead. But it, it's still, it, to get it off was not going to be easy it was very difficult, actually. And then they carry him as quickly as possible, as respectfully as possible, as possible, as reverently as possible. But they got to get him to the tomb before night falls. It's already starting to get late. The day is ticking away. There's not much time left. So they have to get him. We know that the women, by the way, who were there, they decided to follow along as well. And so you have this kind of really quick gathering, almost like a, a, a small funeral processional. And they're carrying the body of Jesus and some of the... the, the, the the ointment that they're going to try to use and, and the cloth they have. They're going to do it as rapidly as they can. We're, we know that they do that. Um, they wrap them up and they put them in. In fact, you can, you can see 
it um, in the account. Well, well, let's look at it together. Look at Matthew 27 with me, verse 57 through 61, and it just kind of summarizes what we just talked about here. It says that the evening approached, and, and as it did, Joseph, a rich man from Arimathea, who had become a follower of Jesus, went to Pilate, and he asked Jesus for, he asked, you know, he asked Pilate for Jesus' body, and Pilate issued an order to release it to him. You can have it. And Joseph took the body, and he, and he wrapped it, we're told, in a long sheet of clean linen cloth, and, and we know that they, they did this, again, as extensively as they could, but knowing that they didn't have time to really complete it, it was the intention of the two Marys, at least, to come back on Sunday and after Sabbath was done and to finish the job. They didn't know how they were going to get the tomb back open. They hadn't really evidently thought about that, but they wanted to complete it because everybody knew that what had been done, although it had been done in love, was not really a complete, uncompleted um, kind of burial. There were some things they still needed to do. But we're told here that, and Joseph took the body, wraps it, he placed it in his, in his own new tomb, which had actually been carved out of a rock. And then he, they had rolled a great stone across the entrance. And then they left. And then both were told, were given a picture that both Mary Magdalene and the other Mary were sitting across from the tomb, evidently just sitting there watching. Now, Mary of Magdala, much has been written about her. Many things have been said about her. Um, people have talked about how, well, you know, she was a, a prostitute who had um, met Christ and had her life radically altered. And, and honestly, the Bible doesn't really say one way or another of what she was. So the Bible is silent on that issue. What it does say is that she was a tormented soul who, when she came into contact with Jesus, got delivered from a past that was ugly. We don't know what that exact thing was, but one thing we do know is that her sense of forgiveness and affection for Christ was so intense that she was faithful even through what, what looked like an, an, an astonishingly bad ending. And we see here that there was Mary of Magdala who had experienced the liberating power of Jesus and had her life, as some of us have had, dramatically changed by the power of Jesus, healed of what we may surmise were deep emotional wounds and identity issues. And we're told there, were other Mary, there was another Mary with her. This is not the Mary, Mary, the mother of Jesus. This is a different Mary. There are a lot of Marys at the time, just to let you know. Um, and there, what, but the picture I got there is that they're described as what? It's just, it says that after the men had left, after Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea left, the picture is of them just kind of sitting there. And they're across from the, the tomb. And, and it's like they don't know what to do. If the person you love most in this world, the person who had most changed you, the person that has set you free, um, was gone, and you had attached everything to that, and now it was over, what do I do? What do I do with my life? Just sitting there waiting as the night sky begin to turn because it starts to turn, as we know, as twilight comes. You know how it is. It's one of my favorite times of the day, at the end of the day, when the sun has set but it's not dark. And you have these hues of blue. And it's like the advance guard of nightfall is on its way. And there they were just lingering. Everything lost, nothing left. That's the picture. Now let's jump forward. It says the next day on the Sabbath, verse 62, the leading priests and Pharisees, they went to see Pilate. Now you have to understand, here we have the gathering of the two groups, don't we? The two really parties that were complicit in the death of Christ, the the leaders of the Jerusalem Council, and Pilate, of course, the Roman governor, who against all of his own personal conviction 
and warning of his wife still refused to sacrifice what would have been for him a potentially career impact. There's an interesting dynamic going on around here. A lot of people are having to weigh out what Jesus is going to mean to them and how they're going to take the risk of letting it affect their career path. Pilate was very similar. He had to weigh out how, to what level was he willing to go with his conscience versus and, and do what was right and let Jesus, who he believed was an innocent man, and, and, and yet at the other hand, he knew that if he, if he didn't have Jesus put to death, that, they were, that there was a possibility that he could lose his power and, and that his career would be ruined. And, and so he made a decision. He sacrifices his conscience on the altar of convenience. And in that moment of decision, he chooses to reject Jesus completely. And if you remember, he makes a big show about how he believes he's innocent. He calls out uh, for everybody to see as they bring out this, what we would assume is an, a large basin of water. And he takes his hands and he lifts up the water. I'm assuming it's dripping out of his fingers. And he says, I am innocent of this man's blood. But he wasn't. He wasn't. No amount of water could change that choice. And you know what's interesting is because I was, I was reading another writer and they were talking about how many have made, at least in this case, he said he, he had made the association between a line in Shakespeare, a measure for measure, in which Shakespeare talks about a man who's intoxicated with power but is, is under an illusion of what they really are. And um, in, in, in Shakespeare's line, he says, man, proud man, dressed in a little, and this phrase caught me, Man, proud man, dressed in a little brief authority. Most ignorant of what he's most assured. You don't even... Man, proud man, dressed in a little brief authority. And there is no such thing. Even the most powerful man, the most powerful woman, whatever we have, whatever we find our identity in, it's all borrowed. It must be returned someday. Nothing lasts. No empire built by human hands. It is a little brief authority. There is no room for true pride to say, I don't, listen, little man, proud man, dressed in little brief authority. At its most, that's all it is. Under no illusions. By the way, three years later, history tells us, Pilate loses his position anyway. He had no clue that he was part of a divine drama, that he would become famous or infamous down the years, part of a creed. We talk about Jesus killed by Pontius, you know, this Pontius Pilate. <laughs> it's fascinating. Okay, just jump back in here. It says, <laughs> all right, uh, Pilate, Pilate, this is what happens. It says, then they said to him, sir, we remember what the deliver, this deceiver once said while he was still alive. And again, in their mind, he has been what they thought. He, he said he was more. He claimed to be the son of God, but he was just a deceiver. That's all. And when they saw him die, they said, it only confirms what we already knew. And you remember some of the taunts that are recorded happening at the foot of the cross are, if you are who you say you are, come on and prove it. Get yourself off the cross now. You said you had the power. Where is it? And, and, they're, and remember, the women were watching this. And we can assume that they were saying, you could, just show them, show them. Nothing. We knew it. And so when they say, this deceiver, they're not just using a, a, you know, 
uh, an aside remark. They believe he is not what he said he was. We knew he wasn't what he said he was. But you know what? We're concerned because we remember one thing that he said. He made this statement, and they've talked about this statement. They said, you know what? He made this claim that after I'm dead, I'll rise in three days. He goes, we want to make sure that, look, look at what they say. They say, look, because we remember, this is what we want to request from you. This is what we need. We need you to put a seal on the tomb, for one. And then we also need you um, to at least do this until the third day. And, and we need a contingent of guards, at least, at least a guard or two. We'd like more, but whatever you can give us, we need some guards there who will prevent, look at this, his disciples from coming and stealing his body. And then they'll, what they'll do is they'll tell everyone that he was raised from the dead. And if that happens, you know what? Then this thing will be more of a problem than it was at the beginning. We'll be worse off than we were at the first. And, and Pilate replies, you know what? Take your guards, take it and secure it the best you can. And so they sealed the tomb and they, they posted guards to protect it. And by the way, this is where it should have all ended. Because if the critics and, and his enemies were right, then this dead so-called savior, deceiver of many, sealed away in a guarded tomb with rotting bones and decaying flesh. And that's it. End of story. We're done. We're finished. This Jesus thing, no more. But something happens that changes everything. Matthew 28, verse 1. Now after the Sabbath, on the, as the first day of the week began to dawn, and by the way, that dawn was different than any other dawn in the history of the human race. It was a different day because the one who was in that tomb was rising, and not just that. Something was breaking loose at a, at a spiritual dimension that had been anticipated by prophets for generations, had been anticipated in the sacrificial system given to the Jewish people throughout history, starting with Abraham in a way, to Moses, all the way up to the coming of the prophets, and then ultimately, we know, to the entrance of the Son of God into this world, and then, of course, the cross itself, which was the ultimate expression of the ultimate sacrifice that had been anticipated by the economy of God shifting into a point of breakthrough. And then we have the final word, the verdict on the innocence of Christ, and the life giver rises. Here we see it. It says here that after the Sabbath, on the first day of the week, as it begins to dawn, that Mary Magdalene and the other Mary came to see the tomb. And so they made their way back to the tomb in Joseph's garden. Little did they know it would be, again, a day like no other. Verse 2, and behold, there was this great earthquake, which would have alone been pretty terrorizing, because if we've ever been around them, they're intense. And it says that an angel of the Lord descended from heaven, and you have this, this heavenly being, and he comes, and he rolled back the stone from the door, and he sat on it, and his countenance, we're told, was like, and again, simple descriptions trying to convey something that was occurring. His countenance was like lightning. His clothing was as white as snow. And then it says that the guards, which understandably they're in absolute shock and terror, shook for fear of him and became like dead men paralyzed in fear. And I was reminded when I read that of what occurred just a few days earlier. If you remember the situation, you remember the picture. Where are we? Flash to the garden. In that garden, as the captors are coming for Jesus, there is a man. He's standing there with a sword in his hand. Look at the tip of that sword, because on it is blood dripping because it is just struck. And the man's hand is shaking because he's got adrenaline flowing through his body. And he had just hit a man with an intention of killing him. He was about to die. We're talking about Peter with the blood of Malchus on that sword. 
And Jesus says, stop! Remember, we talked about it. He tells Peter, stop. He tells everybody, stop. Put, Peter, put the sword away. That was one thing he says. Don't you understand? Those who live by the sword, you'll die by that sword. You put the sword away. And then Jesus makes this other statement. He says, don't you understand? If I wanted to. And he so, Jesus so rarely says stuff like this. Don't you understand? that if I wanted to, even now, I don't need you to protect me, my friend. Even in this moment, I could call down 12 legion, thousands of angels. It's never been about that. This is as it is to be. Put the sword away. And he goes. If one angel could cause that level of terror, what could thousands do? I mean, you think, you think about it in that way. You go, my goodness. Okay, anyway, jump back in, all right? says here that the angel answered and said to the women, do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. But listen, he's not here. He's gone. He's risen. Just like he said, come, 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 see the place where the Lord has been laying. Come, see for yourself. And, and in that tomb, in that, in that place, again, what would he have wanted them to see? Look at the, do you see? The, not only is it empty, but you see the grave cloths there. Because again, the grave cloths were not like just piled up in some jumbled mess thrown to the side like someone unwrapped them. They had settled down as if what was in them was no longer there. Because remember this, the stone, and it was a big boulder. It took many men to relay that and it had been sealed. That stone was not rolled away so that Jesus could get out. It wasn't like he's knocking, right, going, let me out, let me out. That stone was rolled away so that those who were coming could see that he was no longer there. Whole different reason, right? And again, what does it say happens here? It says, but he says, do not be afraid for I know that you seek Jesus. I know who you're looking for. You're looking for Jesus who was crucified. But look, he's not here. He's alive. He's risen. As he said, he would come. See the place where the Lord lay and go quickly. Now what I want you to do is go and tell his disciples that he is risen from the dead. And indeed, he is going before you into Galilee. And there you will see him. Behold, I have told you this. And so they went and quickly left quickly from the tomb with fear and joy and ran to bring the disciples word. Fear and joy, two completely contradictory emotions, aren't they? Fear and joy. But that fear was swallowed up by an even greater joy, wasn't it? There is a joy that overcomes the fear of what we cannot fully comprehend. And truly, it had been hard for them to believe that Jesus was alive. Remember, remember that despite what he had told them, they, they had come that Easter morning to see what? To see if what he said <laughs> was going to come to pass? No. They didn't come there going, oh, let's see if what Jesus had told us about rising again is going to happen. They came, they came simply because they, were, they loved him and they were moved and they wanted to anoint. Yes, they wanted to move the stone and they wanted to properly anoint his dead body. That was their reason for coming. Listen, it is an indisputable fact that not a single person, not one disciple, not Mary of Magdalene, not Mary the mother of Jesus, not any of them, had, had believed, had expected, not even the closest of his disciples, no one expected him, listen, expected him to rise. There is nobody, there is no group there camped out saying, all right, we're waiting. We're waiting for it to happen. There's nothing. There is nobody who believes it. 
as far as they were concerned, when that thing happened, when they watched it happen in its most bitter, brutal way, it was all done. Whatever Jesus was, and he was a beautiful thing to many of them. And he had words that they believed came from God. And he said things that would be remembered, they hoped, for a long time. He had changed their lives. Whatever he was, and he was many good things, he wasn't what he had said he was. But they came, to they came anyway because they wanted to honor him. And they wanted to say we loved you. Even if we were mistaken, we still want to be there to honor you. And it was a beautiful moment. It was loyal. It was beautiful. Loyalty. Those women, the women, by the way, that, I'm telling you, that, their love, unshakable, undaunted, loyal to the end. It's a beautiful thing. And then it says, as they went to tell his disciples, as they were on their way to do what they had been told to do, that says that all of a sudden Jesus appears. And he met them. And he said to them, now he was the same, but he was different. And it's an indication in many of our minds of what the next life is going to be. That time and space as we know it will no longer apply the same way. Because of Jesus' body, evidently he could be recognized, but he was also able to move in ways that a normal human being in his previous limitations that were self-appointed, he could not do. Now we see it in a completely different thing. It says, Jesus says to them, rejoice, let your joy be full. And so they came and they held him by the feet and they began to worship him. And they began to just say, Lord Jesus. You know, they were, and as they were doing that, Jesus said to them, do not be afraid of me. Do not be afraid. I need you to go and I need you to tell my brethren, go to, the, go to Galilee. Tell them to go to Galilee and there I will meet them. Now, okay, in the time we have left, and we only have a few minutes left, I want to put some things out there around this. And we make some, and you know what? I hope we sit with this as we move into the rest of this day, as we move in this way. I want us to think about it, just interact with it, because one thing, there's a couple of things that stand out. I just want to make a point to note them. Number one is this, that there is a kind of love that, ling that lingers. There, and, and, and this is going to mean something more to some of us than others. But there is a love that lingers. And it lingers even when things don't make sense. There's a love for the Lord that is there even when things don't make sense. And I was looking at this and I was going, wow, God, you know, I, I see this in, in the Marys. They're just lingering after the stone had been rolled away. They're sitting there and their day is closing and they're, they're just there wondering, you know, what, am I, what are we going to do? But they're just, they're just there. They're there. And there's something about, um, uh, uh, something there. You know, we live in such a fast pace now. Uh, culture where we're so accustomed to getting our information rapidly and things, you know, hurry up, hurry up. It's, it's just like what slow now would have been lightning fast, you know, just a decade ago. We're so, we're so accustomed to movement. And, and so many of our, our new technologies have taken away some of the things that make the human experience most rich. And it's not me being a Luddite or an anti-technology guy. What I am saying is that there are some things that the way we're wired as human beings, we were made to do, and they work best. And some of those things are just talking with people, human touch, human voice. But you know what? The ability to linger, the ability to slow ourselves down and to assess, particularly after bad things happen, there is a value at the end of the day in lingering and reflecting on what, has, what have I just walked through? What does this mean? God, where are you in this? Yes, even in the why places. You know what's interesting to me? Is that the first people in the world to see the risen Jesus are the women who are willing to linger. 
There's something powerfully profound about that. But here's the deal, and it's the second piece. And it's hard not to notice this as well, that the Lord loves it when we show up, even if it's for the wrong reasons. <laughs> and you know what? Why I say that is because the women were there Really, if you want to get down to it, they were there, but it was for the wrong reason. They, they didn't get there because they got, okay, we're going we're gonna to double check this thing and, and you know, because he's going to rise. He said he was. No, they were, look, they were there because they wanted to honor the one who had changed their lives, not because they believed he was going to rise. In fact, if you look at that sixth verse, some have even heard in those words right there that there is a subtle kind of admonishment that's taking place when the angel says, listen, he isn't here. Remember what he, do you remember what he said? Do you remember? Just as he said he would? That's the phrase, right? Come, see the place. He's alive. He's not here anymore. He's not there. He's alive. As he said. You see that? It's almost like he's just put it in there. And I think, listen, we we may not always get it right. We may not always show up for the right reasons. We might come with a bail, uh, you know, a pail of spices, but here's the deal: they showed up anyway, and there is a power in being present. You know, I said this to people. I said sometimes, you know, I know it's an act of courage just to get to the Lord's house, and I get it. God, God can meet us anywhere, but you know what? There's something unique about the gathering of many who come together to listen for the voice of Jesus together. There's something about it. Something like David said: "I was glad when they said unto me, let us go to the house of the Lord.'" And I said, you know, sometimes it's just a victory to come into the house of the Lord together and being present, you know, sometimes even for the wrong reasons. <laughs> we were joking earlier. Some of us are saying, yeah, you know, I got dragged here. It's Mother's Day, you know. I'm here for, but you know what? We're here. And, and I've, had, I've, had, I've had people who say to me, you know what? I'm, I'm, uh, basically, I had a conversation. Actually, it was a conversation with a person I saw last night, and it was an earlier conversation. This person's an accomplished person, and they were saying to me, basically, I'm no good. I'm not really good at this thing, this, this following Jesus thing. And it was almost like what I was hearing there was a lot of shame. It's like, you know, it's almost like, you know, I don't belong here. And I said, hey, I'm like, you know what? There's no sign on that thing that says only those who have their act together can walk through these doors. This is a group, a place where broken people come to be touched by a living Savior who makes all the difference in the world. And you know what? I'll tell you something else. The more we actually get close to Jesus, the more we see the contradictions in our own heart, the more we realize how much grace means, we start to go, wow, God, it's never about me being good enough, throwing out, rolling out, why you should recruit me, Jesus. It's never been that. It never will. You know what the Bible says? God resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. There is actually a blessing in saying, Lord, I need you. I'm not that good. Because you know what? He cares enough about us that he just wants us to show up. And you know a lot of times what happens when we show up? Yeah, even in our brokenness, even in our mess, the presence of the Lord is there. They came expecting, to hoping to have an opportunity to finish a job on a man who they loved who was dead. What they got instead was an invitation and a meeting with a living Savior. What a difference. Don't ever underestimate what happens we get near the presence of Jesus. Last thing I'll say, maybe the most important, because it's going to set the tone for where we're going in the months ahead, and it means everything to me, because in some ways, it's everything our church is about. This community is about. It's what we're committed to. And it's this final point, and we'll put it up there as well, that when we meet, truly meet, the risen Christ, 
there's a part of us, listen, that will be compelled to tell others about it. Just, it just, it follows, listen, as night follows day and day follows night. It's just that much, isn't it? I mean, think about it. Look, look what's going on here. When they saw Jesus, what was their first reaction? Their first reaction was they wanted to fall at his feet and they worshiped him. But what was the, and what did Jesus say? Good, let's spend some time right there. You know what he said? I need you to get up and I need you to go and tell. They said, let's work. He said, get, get going. I have a message for you to bring. Go and tell. I love that. They wanted to stay in worship. He said, go and tell. What does that tell us? I think it tells us something very profound as well. It's a reminder that as important as it is for us to gather and to reaffirm things that are true and to stir our hearts towards wanting to follow Christ and be open to God in our lives, the fact of the matter is, when it's all said and done, this faith was never meant to be a private faith. It was meant to be shared. It was meant to be shared because you know why? It's good news. It's good news. No private static faith. This is something that must go forth. No, the news is too good not to be shared. You know why? Because the Savior is alive. And because he lives, people can live. We live. And it's, it's, it's a message that needs to be shared with people around us. Jesus said, go and tell. And ours is a telling thing. We are to tell about a Savior whose love is unquenchable. We are to tell about a Savior who never gives up, who gave everything for us. Tell about a God whose love is relentless, who pursues us, costs him everything, gives it for us. We are to tell others about the change that that living Christ has made in our own lives, is making in our own lives. And you know what the Bible says? Jesus said this, let your light shine before men that they may people, that they may see the goodness of your life and give glory. They may in turn give an honor and openness towards God who is in heaven. This is a part of what we're supposed to, you know, you know why? Because really, we need to, this is the message we bring and I'll tell you, we are to share it. We are to share it. Not just at Easter time, but all through the year. This is not just an Easter message. Because in a way, Easter never ends. This message is about a living God, a living Savior who changes lives. Not just back then, but now. And many of us have been eyewitnesses to the profound touch of Christ in our lives. And we need to ask God to give us, like Joseph needed, courage to share that with other people. Sometimes it's our colleagues, our peers. And I'm not talking about laying the heavy. I'm not saying that there aren't times we need to be thoughtful and subtle and careful and at some level respectful. I get that. But you know what? There is such a thing as being ashamed of Jesus. And it's too good to keep it to ourselves. Friends, some people, we alone are going to have access to them. They trust us. Not some guy on a, well, I'm not not some guy on a stage. They got to hear it from somebody they love and trust. People who've been touched by Jesus, who are asking God to give a little bit of courage out of our own imperfections to say, let me tell you about what Jesus has done in my life. It's a stunning thing that he's doing. It's a good news what he's done. I want to share that with you. I want to make it known in whatever way, small, medium, large, little seed, small seed, here, there, a little there, I don't know, 30, 60, 100 fold, let the harvest come. It's the way it works. But it is, a, it is a message that was not meant to be self-contained. From its beginning, it's meant to be given away. Let's pray.
Lord, we thank you for the great privilege of being able to do the things that you've talked about doing in our lives. And I want to ask you, Lord, to just keep working in us, Lord. None of us, again, we talked about this. None of us have this together. We're a whole lot more like those who just didn't, didn't know what was happening and ran away, Lord. That, that's the, you know what, Lord? That, that's the truth. Even those who were there were there for the reasons that, that weren't even accurate. That's not the point, is it? Lord, I, just, I know that you're doing things in our lives. You're doing things because you care deeply. You've given us a hope that reaches beyond time, both life now and life to come. What a gift. Can't buy it, never could. It's a gift. Can't buy a gift. It has to be received. Lord, I pray that you would keep working and that you would use people, people like all of us, to be difference makers in some small way, sometimes in a big way. Never know what we can do when we just talk about you. And I just pray that we would be bringers and includers, lovers of God, lovers of others, who are good and who care about shining your light and your grace in a, in a, in a world that so desperately needs it, looking for all the, the things that, that can't satisfy in the wrong places. But we have, we've, we've had a chance perhaps to drink from the water that is eternal and it comes out of Calvary's gift. And so anyway, Lord, I, I, just, you know, I just pray blessing, grace, and life and may it flow in many directions. And may we never be ashamed of you. Give us courage. And I pray you bless our closing minutes, bless our, our closing song, bless our, our giving time, our offering time. Let it just be a, a, a fitting conclusion to the time that we've invested together. May you profoundly work in our lives. And this is what we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.